So we're going to continue this series today. I love my church, and I'm wanting to give you some language to use so that you can articulate why you love your church. I know that you do, and your friends and family are going to ask you, why do you love your church so much? You go every week, every single week, and you, you serve and you do all this stuff with your church. Why do you, why do, you do all that? And I want to help you to articulate that. So here, here we go. Week two, I love my church because my church is family. Yeah. My church is family. They say that family is kind of like fudge, mostly sweet with some nuts. <laughs> and we live in a day and age when a lot of people come from broken families. And they are children of divorce, and there's hurt in families, and sadness, and betrayal, and rejection. And that's why so many people in our world are lonely. I read a survey that said about half of Americans are lonely. Only one out of four feel like they have a close group of friends. Only half said they have meaningful in-person social interactions. People are lonely and they want contact with people. You realize that God already made a cure for that loneliness disease? It's called the body of Christ. It's your church family. We are the body of Christ, and you belong here because Jesus is the center of this family. It's a loving family. It's a family that blesses you, and we're moving forward together as we follow Jesus, not as just co-workers for the cause of Christ, but family members together building the kingdom of God. I want to talk about that. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you can go there in your Bible or you can follow along on the screen. It says this, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. So what this translates to is, Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Right? We're all a part of the one body. We come from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different skin colors. Some are rich, some are poor, some are powerful, some are oppressed, some are politically left, some are politically right. It doesn't matter because we come into this church and we're united by the same spirit. And here's what this means. That means that when you come into church, all of the insecurities that you normally carry in life don't belong in the church with the body of Christ because you're with family. You're not with people who are judging you by outward appearance or by how much money you make or how educated you are. You're with people who love you just because you're family. You should be secure knowing that you are one with the body of Christ. And this also means that any of the prejudices that you might have carried before Christ have no place in the church family. Okay, because human nature is that we naturally like people who are like us, and we're suspicious of people who are different than us. Maybe even growing to hate people who are different than us. But that's not the way it is for Christians, because the blood of Jesus covers over the issues that divide us. So in the natural, things that divide us, like skin color and economic standards and political opinions, those things don't divide us in the body of Christ because we dwell and we operate out of the supernatural where we're united by the same spirit of God, and it makes us family. Your family. We are family. Come on. 
So in the scriptures, we see that God uses covenant language to describe three types of relationships. And what I realized is that all covenant relationships are actually family relationships. It's really cool in Arizona, they do this thing that me and my wife got to do where we got a special type of marriage license called a covenant license, which makes it harder to call it off. You know, and that's a good thing in this day and age. Um, Not that we're worried about that. But... A covenant relationship is not like a contract. In a contract, if one party fails to uphold their side of the bargain, the other party is released from their obligations. But a covenant relationship is one where the people in that relationship endure and they stay faithful to each other no matter what. So here's the strongest covenant relationship in Scripture. It's the relationship between God and man. The Bible talks about a new covenant, or in your Bible, it's probably called the New Testament, which is a covenant between God and man, confirmed by the blood of Jesus. And God says that because of Jesus, for you, his children, he'll never leave you or forsake you. He's given you the right to be called children of God. You've been adopted into his family, and God does not unadopt us out of his family. He's committed to us no matter what we do, no matter what mistakes we make, no matter how far we run. God keeps loving us. It's a covenant relationship. Then there's another covenant relationship described. It's in marriage between a man and his wife. The Bible says two become one, one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one tear apart. And we talk about this in our marriage vows. We say, for better or worse, in sickness and health, till death do us part. That's covenant relationship language. Contract language is, as long as you put your socks away, I'll stay your wife. That's not covenant language. And then there's covenant language used to describe Christians and their church. It's all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New It says in 2 Chronicles about God's people that they share one heart. Malachi says, we are children of the same father. The Gospel of Matthew says, we're equal as brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians says that we're of one mind, united in thought and purpose. I love in Colossians 3, it says that we should forgive each other in the church the way that Jesus forgives us, comparing the two covenant relationships. And the passage that we're reading right now today says that we're parts of one body. Now, you know that a body does not normally just throw away its parts. Maybe if it's a Mr. Potato Head, you just pull off parts, reattach parts, but not in a real body. A body, its parts are semi-permanent, you know, and they tend to stick around. So we're going to keep reading verse 14. It says, yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. So if you don't know, the Apostle Paul who's writing this, it's kind of comedic. 
he's kind of joking around a little bit and using a funny illustration with the real human body as an example. And, and he's saying that the body has different parts. It would be strange to see a body made up of just one part. That would be called a freak show. You know, a person walking around just a body of hands, just everywhere, hands, just crawling around. You know, that would be really weird. And so we see these different parts in one body. The reason we need to talk about that is because the body of Christ has different parts. And one of the mistakes that Christians sometimes make is because they're a certain way and have certain passions, they find themselves wanting to be around other parts that are just like them. It's easy for the hands to get frustrated at the feet because the feet don't care about hand stuff. And the nose get frustrated at the eyes because the eyes don't care about nose stuff. But in reality, God says we need each other. We need people with different passions and backgrounds and educations. I think about how in the church in America, oftentimes you'll find churches where it's just all white people in one church or all Asian people in one church or all black people in one church. And that's not a sin, That's not necessarily wrong. It just doesn't look like heaven. The church is supposed to look like heaven. People of all races, tongues, tribes, ethnicities join together in their love for Jesus. And you have different talents and abilities, and we need you in the body because you make us better. It's good to have people with different talents. It's good to have people with different cultures and backgrounds. We need one another. Verse 22 says, In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This is good. All parts of the body are important. And when people teach on this passage, normally they'll use a comparison like, you know, the janitor who sweeps the floor is just as important as the pastor who preaches the sermon. And that's true, just as important. And we honor them. But I want you to look at this from another angle today. As I read this passage, I think about who it was written to and in what time it was written. In this day and age, in this culture, the people who were considered to be least important, the people who were weakest culturally and socially were children. In this culture, it wasn't like today. Like today, we got helicopter moms everywhere. Children are our future. Come on, people join together, right? It's all about the kids. In this day, it was different. People's attitude was children should be seen and not heard. Doesn't matter if one dies, I'll just make another one. Like kids were just one level above the family dog. And they didn't have family dogs. So, you know, the bottom. And that's how, in fact, we see an example in scripture of kids trying to come to Jesus and some of the disciples tried to stop them. Like, don't bother Jesus, kids. He doesn't have time for you. And what did Jesus say? Let the children come to me. The parts that are considered weakest and least honorable should actually be treated with the greatest care. They're actually the most necessary because we know that if we don't give everything for the kids, if we don't raise up kids, if we don't invest in kids and youth ministry, in about 30, 40 years, there will be no church. There will be no Christians preaching the gospel. They're the most necessary. 
So that's why kids are such a high priority at our church. And I want to say this. Today, there's another group that is treated as weak, and they're treated as having little honor, and that's the elderly. Oftentimes in churches, the elderly are sent out to pasture. Hey, don't bother us anymore. Let the young people play with all the toys that you paid for. That is not honoring to God, and it's not honoring to our fathers and mothers and grandparents. So that's one of the reasons why this church, we love to see a diversity of ages, young and old. We want all people to know that you have a place here. You might be retired, but you can be refired for God and serve. We have chapel services on both of our campuses where some people go and they worship together. Maybe they think that the music in here is too loud. That's okay. We talked about last week how the Bible says you're supposed to worship with loud music. So we create an environment where it's not loud. That way, if your ears are sensitive, you can worship with God's people because we want to honor the elderly. And that's good to do that, isn't it? I'm grateful for this fact. You realize that in the last six months, there are about 1,400 young people under the age of 21 who call this church their home and regularly attend this church. That's awesome. Verse 25 says, this makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Tell your neighbor right now, you're a part of it. Just look at your neighbor, just look at him and tell him, you're a part of it. You are. I love my church because we live together and dwell together with so much harmony. There is so much unity. There aren't factions and divided groups. And I have to give, you know, my dad a lot of credit. I have to give my father-in-law a lot of credit because they were so supportive of the future of this church. And they were so supportive of me and of what was happening. They could have caused problems, but instead they were so passionate about unity and love for one another, right? And so that has translated in our whole church we see that people love each other they're united with one another they live in harmony okay so as a part of the body of Christ we're called to care for each other I want to talk today about how we care for each other because if we don't people suffer and if one part suffers all the body suffers so in order to be cared for the body you have to be connected to the body What really makes me sad as a pastor is when someone says, I got sick and no one checked up on me. I got sick and nobody cared about me. And I I really feel sad. And I want to say, it's not that nobody cares about you. It's probably that nobody knows you. It's probably that you you don't have a connection to the community of the church. You're not in community. Now, I want to say this. Generation Church has been one of the fastest growing churches in the country. Last year was the fastest growing church in Arizona. Come on, somebody. That's awesome. I love it. So we have become what would be considered a large church. And there are a lot of people who have fears about being a part of a large church. They think, if I go to a large church, I'll just be another number. I'll get lost in the crowd. The truth is that if you do the things that we've asked you to do, you won't get lost in the crowd, but you can hide in the crowd. 
If you choose to, you can hide in the crowd. And the reality is you can hide in the crowd of a church of any size. Even in a small church, people come in and they hide and, and they don't necessarily wear camouflage and sneak along the wall, you know. Like, but what they do is they walk in, they clap, they sing, they worship, they listen to a sermon and they walk out. Meanwhile, there's no connection. They're not connected to the body. And so they're not able to be cared for properly. I want to say this. You should realize there is no difference in the number of relationships that you'll have in a small church versus a big church. And sociologists have proven this. There's been multiple studies done. I love this one study, 2007. They analyzed 6 billion phone calls made by 35 million people, and they analyzed the circle of relationships that people had. And what they found is that all people have about the same number of relationships. All people have about 130 to 150 semi-close relationships, people they know their names, they know a little bit about what's going on in their life. And then there are circles of friendships that grow increasingly intimate, all the way down to about an average of four or five pretty close friends that most people have. So most people have about four or five fairly close friends who they talk to most of the time. They have up to about 150 relationships where they know their name. Maybe some are coworkers, some are at church. And that would be the case if you went to a church with 150 people or 150,000 people. It's just reality. The cool thing about being a part of a large church is you get to pick your 150 people a lot more choosily. <laughs> like, yeah, nah, I'm, nah, I'm gonna hang out with you, I'm gonna hang out with you. That's all right, there's nothing wrong with that. And there are good things about small churches, they add great things to the body of Christ, and there are good things about large churches. And I wanna say this, there's no such thing as a bad church size. There are only bad attitudes about church size. So whether your church is small or big, you have to choose to connect to your church. At any size, the church's responsibility is to provide you with an opportunity to connect, and your job is to choose to connect so that you can be cared for and make a difference. So I'm going to talk about how to connect because we're family, how to function as family. We're family, and family nurtures one another. We teach. We support we challenge, contribute, we celebrate together and mourn together. We win together, but we have to be connected to do those things. So here's how you function as family. First, come to church. Come to church. You have to actually come. Now, on average, about, I would say, one-third of our church is not here on any given week. And there are good reasons for that. Things like people had to work or go on a work trip, people get sick, people go on vacation. All of those are what I would call good excuses to miss church. But if you miss church and it's for not one of those reasons, like let's say you're just tired, you've just been busy, you just don't feel like being around people today, that's not a good reason. You can skip, it's just going to end up hurting you. It's just going to hurt you, and that's why I'm talking about this. You can watch online, of course. And there are people watching online right now who are maybe sick or they're just away from home, and that is great. It's better to watch online than to be totally disconnected. Amen? Yeah. But 
watching online, I believe, is not a substitute for gathering with God's people at your local church campus and being in the presence of God together with other Christians. So it's not a substitute. But I know there's people, they'll think, you know, but you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And I would say, you don't have to be in, fi- in water to be a fish, you know? A, a Christian out of church is kind of like a fish out of water. Still a fish, just not going to be doing very well for that long, you know? It's going to be an unhealthy fish. A Christian out of church, still a Christian, just not living his or her best life. Hebrews 10.25 says, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. That word neglect there is a pretty strong word. The definition of neglect is a disregard of duty resulting from carelessness. Some people miss church because they're just careless. Oops, we slept too late. Oops, we got too busy. Oops, we didn't prioritize it. And that's actually neglect. I want you to think about how today, in this day and age, people who neglect their children get arrested. And they should. People today who neglect their pets might get arrested. But why is it socially acceptable for Christians to neglect their own soul? By not gathering together with the body of Christ. Christians have a duty to provide spiritual nourishment for themselves. You have a duty to nourish your own soul. And if you're a husband, that of your wife. If you're a parent, that of your kids to nourish their soul. And there actually is a punishment for soul neglect, but it's a self-inflicted wound. It's something that you do to yourself. You become isolated and vulnerable and lonely, and your gifts are wasted. If you amputate a part of the body, you cut it off from the blood flow, eventually it becomes unhealthy, the cells decay, it dies, it starts to stink, it can't function the way it was meant to function. And Christians can technically be a Christian, but you cannot live out the, Christ, the Christian life if you're not connected to the body of Christ. You can be a Christian, you just can't live out Christianity if you're not connected to the body of Christ. So be connected. When you come to church, when you do come, talk to people, okay? Please, talk to people. I know some weeks you are in a hurry and you have to get somewhere, you have to leave, but, but that can't be the way it goes every week. You can't just walk in like head down, don't make eye contact, head down, don't make eye contact, don't look the pastor in the eyes or he'll start to notice you, right? You can't, you have to actually talk to people. I can't just walk up to strangers and talk to them. Yes, you can, because they're not strangers, they're family. And you can talk to a family. You go to a family reunion, even if you haven't seen that one weird uncle for decades, you still can talk to him because he's your uncle. It's the same in the body of Christ. You can just walk up to anyone and start talking to them like family. You've been made family through the spirit of God. So some of you are more mature in this than others. So you need to help other people out who haven't become confident in talking. So go up to people and just encourage them, get to know them, ask them their names so that they'll feel like they just can't not come back, right? Like they'll feel like they're part of the family. I love Generation Church because it's a church where people actually want to come to church. Kids actually want to come to church here. Some of you are only here today because your kids made you come to church. You know, 
You know what I'm talking about? And we're okay with that. We want you to come and experience the presence of God. You're going to grow. You're going to make friends. You're going to learn about the Bible and what Jesus has for your life. You're going to leave better than how you came. Come to church. Second, here's the next thing. You need to serve on a team to function as part of the family. If you serve on a team in some way, then just go ahead and make some noise right now. So at Generation Church, I don't like to say volunteer. I like to say team. I don't like to say people volunteer. I like to say people serve. Jesus didn't come to volunteer for us. He came to serve us. And it's only just a, it's just a word thing, because I think of volunteers as people that go to soup kitchens once a year to feel better about themselves. Right. But teammates can rely on each other. They have each other's back. They're united in the same mission. They play hurt. They go all in because their teammates are relying on them. We serve because Christ first served us. So we serve. And one of the best ways to make new friends is to serve. You can make friends and make a difference at the same time. When you're serving alongside people, you're actually doing ministry together, you're experiencing things together, you're overcoming challenges together. It's a really natural way to just then form connections and friendships. And this is a side note for the single people, because we love you single people. One of the best ways, if you're single and ready to mingle, is to serve. That's how you can meet someone, because you're just in proximity with each other, and it doesn't have to be weird. You don't have to be on a date. You're just serving Jesus together, and in the process, you can have some fun and high-five and smile, and then, you know, like, hey, can I get your number so we can talk about how to serve better? Just, just throwing that out there. 1 Peter 4.10 says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. So if you think, I don't have anything to contribute, the Bible says you do. God has given each one of you a gift. Each one, no exceptions. Use your gift to serve one another. That's talking to Christians, serve one another. So there are different gifts in scripture, gifts of helping and teaching, giving, leadership, faith, wisdom, encouragement, many more. The body of Christ needs your gifts. You might be the best person who has gifts to contribute to a problem that the body currently has. But if you're not contributing, if you're not helping, then the body suffers. Galatians 5.13 says this. For you have been called to live in freedom. Pay attention to this verse. My brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. I want to just explain this. This passage is from Galatians. It was written to a group of Christians who were really struggling against false religion and religious obligations. And, and there was this teaching happening that you can be a Christian, but you still need to get circumcised the way that the Jewish custom required. And people were like, do we really have to do that? The same way that you would ask, you know? Aren't you glad that we don't do that today? You know, like, hey, welcome to church. Um, just need you to get circumcised real quick. There's a surgical team in the back. We'll provide the ice packs. Thanks. You know, it's not like that anymore. But people today still struggle with religious obligation. Many religions require service in order to essentially be saved. 
They would say, you know, in Islam, serving, doing good is one of the five pillars of Islam. Eastern religions require people to serve, to earn good karma so they can eventually be reincarnated and achieve nirvana. Certain groups in our country require people to go on two-year missions trips in order to be socially accepted. And so the Bible says you're free from religious obligation. You don't have to serve. You don't have to serve to be saved by God. You don't have to serve in order to receive God's favor. You don't have to serve in order to get into heaven. You are not under any obligation to serve. God will not love you more if you serve. He will not love you less if you don't serve. You follow? But then I think this passage is really interesting because it says, don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. And I think there's an interesting way to think through this as well. Maybe something you haven't thought about before. Our sinful nature is selfish. Our sinful nature says, I want to do things that I want to do. I only want to do the things that build up my kingdom. Why should I help you? There'll be less time for helping me. Our sinful nature is lazy. Just being honest sometimes, it's lazy. Like, I just don't feel like it. It's going to be hard. I'm tired. And so this passage is saying, you're free from religious obligation. You don't have to serve. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. And just say, well, I don't have to, so I'm not going to. Instead, this passage says... Use your freedom to serve one another in love. So I don't have to serve you, but I want to because it's one of the ways I can show you love. This is good. People get worried that if they serve, they'll be asked to do too much. I know that what's going through a lot of your minds right now is, man, but I'm overworked already. I can't overextend myself. And if we're being honest, we hate to overcommit ourselves. We're worried we'll be just asked and burdened and we'll never get a break. I think about how people describe football games. You know, a football game is 50,000 out of shape people in desperate need of exercise watching 22 athletes in desperate need of rest. That's how it goes in a lot of churches. Most churches, there's like a a couple people who are serving and going all in and they're giving everything they got. And there's a lot of people just benefiting from their serving, not contributing, you know. But I think of the old saying, many hands make the load light. That's not how it works here. Here, we have hundreds of people serving. Think about the backpack outreach. About 1,600 guests and almost 400 people serving. That's like a four-to-one ratio of people coming and people serving. That's a lot of helpers, right? That's a lot of people contributing. One person doesn't have to carry the load by himself or herself. Many people are helping. And when you don't serve, you're letting someone else carry the burden that you're responsible for. You're letting them carry your weight. They'll do it. They'll get through it with God's help, but you're supposed to be a part of that. And I did say that God won't love you more if you serve. That's true, but that's not the same. It's not the same. We're talking about love versus blessing. He won't love you more, but you will be more blessed when you serve. Because we only experience God's blessings when we actually do the things that he asked us to do. Even when when we don't, he still loves us. But if you want God's best for your life, serve. 
For many Christians, serving is when you transition from only thinking about how God can help you and you start thinking about how you can help others. So is your life making a difference in the kingdom of God? Because everyone who serves is making a difference. And if you're ready to serve, if you're ready to get connected in that way, the only thing you have to do before you can serve is go to our G101 class. It's gonna be during every service today, and then normally it's the first and third week of the month. You come to that class, you learn about the church, you learn how to serve, we give you snacks, we give you donuts, we give you food, right? If you're here today and you wanna come back to the PM services and go to G101, you can, your kids can come. It's a great way to get plugged and involved. It's a good first step. So serve, and here's the third thing. Join a life group. If you wanna be connected to the family, you gotta join a life group. Man, today we have over 120 life groups which is just incredible. All kinds of groups. There are sermon-based life groups where people talk about the sermon and they process it together. So if you've ever listened to a sermon and you thought, man, I wish you would have said this. Man, I would have liked to add something to that. Go to a sermon-based small group and you can chew on it together. You can put in your two cents, right? There are growth groups. People can learn the foundations of faith. You can learn practical life skills like Financial Peace University, learn how to have a budget and actually follow it. There are care groups, and care groups are for people who might be hurting and just need extra support. So if you've been divorced, if you've lost a child or a loved one, right, there are care groups for you to bring support that you need. There are interest groups. These are for people who you were already going to do something you're interested in anyway. You might as well do it with other Christians and have Christian community. Get together and golf together and just, you know, talk about what God's doing in your life while you miss that putt. Get, you know, get together and go hiking, go knit, do crafts, whatever it is. Um, and you can just be with God's people and you can share and you can pray and have fun. Whatever kind of group it is, I don't care as long as you're in community. That's right. Acts 2.46 says about the early Christians, they worship together at the temple each day. They met in homes for life group (laughs) and they share their meals with great joy and generosity this is the model for Christians to get together and eat together it's not a real Christian gathering if there's not food I think the Bible kind of says that Um, but they come together and they enjoy being together life groups is where you can form close personal relationships it's where we care for each other it's where that happens in life group we share our lives with each other you know who never says I got sick and nobody called me people in a life group It never happens. If you're in a life group and you get sick, eventually someone's going to text you. What's up, bro? Are you okay? Have you fallen and you can't get up? Should I call the police? Should we bring food? Like what? There will be people there to care for you. And maybe you're ready to lead a life group and you know who you are. (laughs) You're not bragging. You're not being prideful, but you know that you're probably more mature spiritually than average and that you could contribute and help other people grow. Man, we need you to lead life groups. Maybe you have led one and you've been taking a break and now it's been, you know, five years. (laughs) It's like the break is over, man. Get back in there. Um, If you tried attending a life group before and it didn't really click for you, maybe you went to a group and you didn't really like the people in your group. That's okay. 
There's nothing wrong with that. We'll help you find another group where you click. Not everyone's going to click with each other. We've helped some people try another group, and then they click with that group. So it's okay to try a group. Maybe you're an extrovert, and it's easy for you to be with people. Your attitude is just the more the merrier. If there's people, I'm happy. So it's not hard to convince you to be in a life group. But maybe you're an introvert. And this feels intimidating to you, the idea of going and meeting new people and like, then they're going to ask me questions about my life and I'm going to have to talk with my mouth. It's going to be so awkward. (laughs) It's not awkward. It's just unusual. (laughs) You're used to being by yourself and being reclusive. But I want you to go to life group and share and talk, and we're not going to make you do anything. You're not, you're not going to have to pray or preach a sermon if you don't want to. But you need to be in a life group. And if you're an introvert, I think you need life groups even more. Because introverts still want friendships and relationships. They just thrive on close relationships, more so than in the big party. So in a life group, you actually get to know each other and you have deeper connections. You don't want to talk as an introvert about the weather and the sport. You want to talk about what God is doing in your life or your marriage challenges or your, like, that's who, who and what you want to talk about as an introvert. So you need that. I want to encourage you to just go and meet and be a part of a life group. Many people talk about how they weren't necessarily convinced and then they did it. And it was a big blessing in their life. One couple, Juan and Nydia, they talked about how uh, she had some health issues. And her group was so there for her. They prayed for her. They brought her food. And in that difficult season, it showed her how much she really needed community. Phil came to church and he said that he didn't think when he came here that he was going to find close friendships like he had at his old church. Just being honest. But he started in a life group, and now the people in his life group are really close friends. They hang out with each other all the time, so much so that it's kind of weird, right? (laughs) I'm just kidding. Bree didn't know anybody. She said she didn't know anybody or have friends when she came to the church, and her life group has become close friends, and they hang out like family. There are young adult groups where they, they gather together when they were single young adults, and then they, they got married around the same time, and with each, they, got, they had kids, and they went through that process together, and they've just gone on this journey together. That's the way that God intended us to live. You need this. You need this in order to thrive. It's kind of like this. I think about this illustration As Christians, we're kind of like this battery. We've accepted Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God dwells inside of us. I can even push a button here and see that this battery has power within it. But on its own, this this battery, although it has power within it, it's not being put to good use on its own, is it? I mean, I could try to, like, do stuff with it. I guess it would be pretty helpful as a paperweight, but that's not what it was intended to be used for. You know, it needs to be connected in order to be of good use. Without the battery, without the power, this drill can't accomplish a lot. You know, I can just like, no, not really the way it's meant to happen. But when I attach it, when I plug it in, there's power. There's power. And then I can use it for what it was intended to be used for. Now, on its own, this battery is not a piece of junk. It costs a lot of money. And every single Christian, even if you're not plugged in, you're still valuable. You're just not very useful. It's when you get plugged in and attached to the body of Christ 
You're able to contribute and make a difference. I can actually then help build the kingdom of God when I'm connected to the body of Christ. I can actually, I can make a difference. I can accomplish what I was meant to accomplish. I don't just have power within me. I am powerful when I'm connected. Someone was sleeping and now they're awake. It's Tim the Tool Man Taylor time. So get connected. Be a part. Help build the kingdom of God. People do have concerns as we close this message about getting plugged in. And they'll say things like this. I'm worried about really getting plugged in because if I do, I might get hurt. And I want to tell you this. You will get hurt. I always tell the truth. As a pastor, at least. And... Whenever you're around people, you will get hurt. When you get married, you will get hurt. When you have kids, they will hurt you. Right? But even though we might say things we wish we could take back, we might do things we're we're regretful of, um, we still, in those moments, continue on together. You will get hurt connected to the body, but the thing is, you will get hurt much worse if you stay isolated apart from the body. You will become isolated and vulnerable and lonely. You will definitely get hurt on your own. Within the body, even though people might occasionally do or say things that offend you or hurt you, the power of the gospel can actually shine through in those moments as we forgive one another the way that Christ has forgiven us. Yeah, we have weaknesses. We make mistakes. But the Lord says in our weakness, his power works best. And our actual lives together, loving each other, forgiving each other, working together, it's a testimony of the love of Jesus Christ and how it transforms us. People will see that and they'll be attracted to Jesus through you. You cannot live out Christianity in isolation. You need to be connected. Yes, we might get on each other's nerves once in a while and hurt each other and let each other down, but we'll also pick each other up and encourage each other and build each other up and have each other backs. We will forgive one another. We'll celebrate with one another. We'll mourn with one another. We'll nurture one another. This is what we do. Build the kingdom of God together. We're family and we're in this together. So maybe you've been a fan of Jesus. Maybe you've been a fan of church and you like coming to feel good and be encouraged, but it's time for you to become family and be a part of the church. It's time to become a part of the family. We need you, and honestly, you need us. Here's how to become a part of the family of God. Whether you've never accepted Jesus, or maybe you once did, but you've ran from God like the prodigal son, you become a part of the family. You are actually, the Bible says, adopted into the family, and you're treated like an equal to Jesus, a co-heir with Christ. You receive the reward that a regular child of God would receive. Even though you've been adopted into God's family, you were once an enemy, now you're God's child. It's by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord that this happens. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The key is you have to understand he has to become the Lord of your life. That means he's your king. That means he's your master. He doesn't just want to be your friend. He says you are his friend, but that happens once you call him Lord. 
So he has to rule and reign in your heart. Then he does become your friend. You do become a child of God. And if you've been running from God for a long time, all you have to do is return to the Father. God the Father loves you and is waiting for you to return. He is desperate for you to return to the family where you belong. So I'm going to ask you to stand at this time in Mesa and in Ahwatukee. Get ready to respond to this. And as you stand, just go ahead and close your eyes. Just an attitude of prayer. And if you're ready to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you want to be a part of the body, or maybe you've been running from God for a long time and you're ready to come home today, I want you to pray this prayer with me. But we're all going to pray together in Mesa and in in Ahwatukee. Everybody just repeat after me. Say, Jesus, I need you. I know that I've sinned. I believe you pay the price when you died on the cross. I believe you rose again so that I could have victory. I give you my life and I trust you. I love you because you first loved me. In Jesus' name, amen.